Good evening, everybody. If you get a Bible out, open it up to Mark chapter 4. That's where we're going to begin in just a moment. Mark the fourth chapter. We get ready to do just a little bit of Q&A this evening. We do have guests with us, maybe even some guests who are here for the first time, at least for a, a Q&A night. This is not live Q&A night, as in Q&A from the audience right here, right now. This is uh, We do that in Bible class. That's when that happens. But right now is questions that have been uh, submitted to me and then questions that I've been asked to entertain uh, and to give some thought to and have some things prepared to say and provide some Bible answers for these things. I always look forward to Q&A night because it's an opportunity to kind of deep dive into some things, sometimes things that are just curiosities to us. Other times there are things that we're really thinking about and concerned about and trying to find some some answers for, and it's not that I believe I have the answers, but I do believe that the Bible gives us answers and direction and the wisdom that we need to uh, to know that what we need to do, and so we're just going to appeal to the Bible for these next few minutes. I've got four questions tonight, all of which are about Jesus, and some of these are questions that have actually been in the stockpile for a little while, not necessarily because they're difficult, but because I was just looking for the right occasion to work them and group them together, and so since we talked a lot about Jesus this morning... We're just going to keep talking about Jesus tonight. If Jesus is on our minds, and hopefully He is, then some of these things will uh, they'll just kind of flow with the, the theme of the day. It is great to see everybody tonight. I'm glad that you're here. hope you've had a pleasant and enjoyable afternoon. Maybe you took an hour's rest to catch up on the hour that you lost last night. Many of us will be working the rest of this week just to get readjusted to the daylight savings time, but I'm glad that you're Glad you're here tonight. In Mark, the fourth chapter, actually, let's just get to it. I want to read verse 1 before I put this question on the screen. In Mark chapter 4 and in verse number 1, there Mark records for us that again, he, that's Jesus, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. and He was teaching them many things in parables. This first question is a question that preachers often have to think about and to worry about, and that is this. How, how were all these large crowds that Jesus taught and spoke to, how were they able to hear Jesus? Specifically, when you think about the the times in which they lived, and the kind of the landscape of the world, and the fact that they did not have technology as we do today, how were they able to hear the things that Jesus said, especially at the benefit of a microphone. How could they hear what Jesus was saying? Imagine, again, maybe hundreds of people. In certain occasions, there were thousands of people. What if you were all the way at the back of that crowd? How would you be able to hear Jesus speak? Now, as I said a moment ago, preachers, we have to think about this all the time. Because the bane of a preacher's existence are microphones and feedback and whether the battery is charged and I forgot to turn it on and all those sorts of things. And Jesus Jesus never had to deal with that because that technology did not exist in that time. Jesus could just focus on the preaching and everybody was able to hear Him. Well, how is that possible? How could they possibly hear and understand clearly the things that they were, that Jesus was saying, especially when you start talking about large multitudes of hundreds and thousands of people? Well, let's just stop and think about for a second. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. I didn't take that picture. I've never been to the Sea of Galilee, but I've done a lot of reading about the Sea of Galilee. That's the location here in Mark chapter 4. 
And maybe this will kind of provide us with a little bit of perspective about the terrain of this particular setting here. Now, we don't know the specific location. I can't like take the pointer and say, Jesus was standing right there in the boat and he was at that spot in the water. And here's where I can't do that for you. We can just kind of guess about that. But this is in the area in the region of Capernaum. And in 1970, there was a researcher and a sound engineer who got together and they went and visited this location. And when they got there, they did some testing there in that area. And this is the place, again, where they believe Jesus did this teaching. And what I want you to see is that there are all kinds... You can see it back here. I wanted to get kind of a wide shot. There's these coves. You see how the land kind of circles there around? There's these coves here, just kind of natural coves. And as well, there's lots of just shallow land and there's some slopes there. And what all of that does is that all comes together to help form just a natural amphitheater. Now, we've got some amphitheaters here locally and across the state, and a lot of those were man-made constructed, but here's just some natural amphitheaters, just taking what God's already created and put out there and just making use of all of that. And what this sound engineer and his assistant did, what they did, is they were testing to see how that sound would travel all the way from down here all the way up to here. And so the assistant, what he would do is he would just start kind of working his way backwards, step by step, maybe a few feet here, a few feet there. And the guy would be down there next to the sea and he would do certain things to create some sounds. He had like a shrill whistle. He had some balloons and he was popping and scratching the balloons and making some noises with all of that. And as he kept moving further and further and further back, they found, amazingly, that the sound just continued to carry. The sound just carried and traveled right along that slope. And they were astonished that that region all around the Sea of Galilee, that even here, the sound would carry hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. In fact, this picture here is actually taken from the road. This is supposed to be the road right here. And they reported about there was an occasion where some guys were actually driving by in their car and they got out because they saw they saw some balloons down there next to the sea and they were wondering what was going on. And the guy got out of his car and he said, man, I wonder what they're doing down there with those balloons. And as they were down there at the sea, they heard him say that. They could hear him say those words. And what that says is, is that the sound didn't just travel this way. The sound actually even traveled that way. Just amazing just how all of that worked together. Just this natural amphitheater and how that just fed sound. Didn't even need to have a microphone. The guy up at the road wasn't even yelling. He was just kind of talking in a normal voice. And that factors into all of this. When we think about the places that Jesus taught and the locations in which he did most of his teaching, I think Jesus picked those places intentionally because he knew people would be able to hear him as the crowds thronged around him. I think there's some other things that need to be taken into consideration as well. Like, for example, the fact that Jesus was not competing with a lot of the noise pollution that we have around us in our modern times. Jesus didn't have to compete with all kinds of traffic noise out on the highway. Didn't have to compete with radios blaring. People got their windows down and all the radios thumping and bumping. Didn't have to worry about airplanes flying overhead and all the sound that that would create. The Sea of Galilee, many times, if there wasn't storming, could actually be a very calm and a very still and a very serene setting for people to be able to hear and to hear clearly. Furthermore, I'd also add to this, I I, I believe people who came to hear Jesus teach, I believe those were people who knew how to listen. I think it's safe to say that that audience that was there in Mark chapter 4, or maybe the audience that gathered there in John chapter 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000, here's a large group of people, 
or the audience that had assembled that day to hear the Sermon on the Mount, all of those occasions, those people that were there, they were very intentional in their listening. It wasn't just, okay, we had to show up to this, and so I'm just kind of passively sort of listening. No. They were there for the specific purpose to hear Jesus teach, which means I don't think you would have had the problem that sometimes preachers have today with their audiences, where folks are whispering to one another, elbowing each other, and passing notes, and doing all that kind of stuff. I don't think Jesus had to worry about that with His crowd. These are people who had come there for the purpose of hearing the Lord speak. And so they would have known how to, how to stay still and how to get locked in and to be focused and not to miss a single word. You know, Mark would later say in Mark chapter 12 and verse 37 that the great throngs, they heard Him gladly. I think that's an indication that these folks would have been intentional listeners. And I think when you kind of just put those simple pieces together... It's really not hard at all to see how people would have been able to hear Jesus even without the benefit of a PA system. You should know that that location there at the Sea of Galilee, that's not the only place where you could find that kind of natural amplification. There were actually lots of places around Palestine and around the Roman Empire where orators and teachers and maybe even governmental officials They could go, and they knew they could go to those places, and they could speak to large crowds, and people would be able to hear them. In fact, Roman officials, they needed to have places like that where they could go, and they could read royal decrees, and they could read laws that the people needed to hear. And so places like that were identified and spotted all over the Roman Empire. For example, I was reading there's a natural amphitheater in Shiloh that's in the region of Samaria where a normal speaking voice, and this is probably not even talking like a, you know, a Josh McKibben extra bombastic voice, but just a normal speaking voice could actually be heard about 1,500 feet away. That's five football fields. That's how much that sound was able to carry. It's amazing. And of course, the mountains, the places where Jesus oftentimes did His teaching in the mountains, mountains like Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, those were ideal locations to do some teaching because once again, the sound was able to travel in those places. And so in a world and in a time where people people needed to hear, they needed to hear what Jesus was saying, and there were other things that they needed to hear in large groups, and when you did not have the benefit of these little guys right here, then places like this would have been really beneficial and they would have been used and would have been used regularly so that people could hear the preaching of the gospel. Now, some have suggested, and actually I was actually surprised how many people did suggest this, some have suggested that the way everybody was able to hear Jesus was that Jesus performed a miracle. That Jesus just miraculously maybe amplified His own voice so that even the people who was all the way in the very back, they could hear Him clearly. Or maybe Jesus did some kind of miracle in the ears of the people so that their, their, you know, their hearing was heightened and they could hear every single word. And let me be clear, Jesus could have done that. No doubt about it. Jesus has the power to do that. Jesus could do any of that if He wanted to. However, we need to just point out that there's, there's no indication in Scripture that Jesus ever performed a miracle so that His voice could be able to be heard. And in fact, as we've already pointed out, I just, I just don't even think it would even been necessary. I'm not even really sure that there would have even been a need for that because the natural terrain and some of these other factors would have been sufficient for people to be able to hear His teaching and to hear it well. And the fact that people took His teaching and then went out and started living it, 
makes it pretty obvious that they were able to hear him. Secondly, this evening, it's a very different question about Jesus, but an important one. The question is, is it wrong to address our prayers to Jesus? I'm about to, about to pray, and I'm going to make that prayer speak just directly to Jesus. Can you do that? Is that wrong to do that? Now, you might be surprised to learn that that is actually a very, very contentious issue amongst some folks. There are actually certain songs in our songbook that people have argued are just unscriptural. Certain songs that they contain lyrics about, about praying and addressing Jesus directly in that way and shouldn't be singing those songs. There's songs that are not in these books. I think about songs like, Have a Little Talk with Jesus, Tell It to Jesus Alone. And so there are some brethren who just just become positively unglued about this subject, and maybe with some good reason. Maybe the reason for that, first of all, is that the general pattern throughout Scripture, not just the New Testament, but all of Scripture, is praying to God the Father. There are lots of prayers in the Old Testament. I don't even think I even need to have us go look at examples of that. Lots of prayers in the Old Testament, and all of those prayers are addressed to God the Father. In fact, in Old Testament times, people wouldn't have even had any clue or any idea of praying to God the Son. That would have been a very foreign concept to people back then. And of course, even once we get into the New Testament, most, the majority of the prayers that we find in the New Testament are prayers that are addressed to God the Father. And of course, when we see something like that in Scripture over and over and over again, see something repeated several times, what does that do? Well, that, that creates a pattern. And patterns are important. Patterns help us to know, all right, seeing that over and over again, and God approved of that, and God accepted that, so I want to follow that pattern. That's acceptable. God, God, God accepts that, and so that's what we need to do. I want to follow that pattern. Secondly, in this connection, we do need to admit that Jesus Himself taught that prayer should be offered to the Father. Let's get Matthew chapter 6 here. In Matthew chapter 6, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to talk a little bit about prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, this is not everything about prayer, but Jesus does kind of lay out just some foundational things. And amongst those foundational principles are these. Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 6. Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then drop down to verse 9, whenever Jesus begins what we often refer to as the model prayer. He says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so here in his teaching and in the model prayer, Jesus says that we can and in fact we ought to pray to God the Father. And it's important for us to note that just because we're praying to God the Father, well that doesn't mean that Jesus is just completely divorced from that entirely. It's not like, all right, I'm over here and I'm going to talk to God the Father. Jesus the Son, He can't be a part of that conversation. He's not a part of that. No, that's not the way that that works. Jesus is actually an important part in the prayer process. Because the Bible tells us in passages like 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 that Jesus serves as our, as our mediator. Christ is the mediator between God and man. He's our go-between, if you will. He is the high priest for us. And what did the high priest do in the Old Testament times? Well, the high priest went between the people and God. And Jesus is our great high priest. And he's able to function in that role amazingly. Now, 
I do not believe that the fact that Jesus is our mediator and our high priest, that that's just limited to how He helps in prayer. But it certainly would include what He does in prayer. And that is why Jesus says in John the 16th chapter, I believe, would you find John 16? As Jesus is talking to His apostles and He's preparing them for His eventual departure, things they need to know, things they need to be ready to do whenever He's gone. And He says to them in verse... 23, in John 16 and in verse 23, he says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He just talks here about, again, praying to the Father. And then he says to do that in my name. Name And of course, it is only by the name of or by the authority of Jesus that any of us can even approach a holy God and to make our requests known to Him and to speak to Him candidly and to tell Him the things that are on our heart. And so it would seem as we take the things that we notice that Jesus teaches, and just the overall general pattern of Scripture, it would seem then that the channel for prayer is to be to the Father, And that that is to be done through the Son who serves as our mediator and as our great high priest. Having said that though, I do need to say that there are New Testament examples where Jesus is directly addressed in prayer. Maybe the most obvious example is in Acts the 7th chapter. I always think of this one immediately in Acts chapter 7. This is the occasion of Stephen. He's had an opportunity to do some preaching to a Jewish audience, and it was a masterful sermon, but they're not really all that happy with the things that he has preached. And the response to that sermon is, they decide to stone him. They're going to kill him. And in the midst of that stoning, Acts chapter 7, look at the very end of the chapter, Acts 7 verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I don't know about you, but what that looks like to me, is that looks like to me a man on earth addressing and praying, calling out to Jesus the Savior in heaven. That's a prayer. He's praying to Jesus. Let me add to that 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, do you remember when Paul was dealing with his his thorn in the flesh? That was causing him such pain and such difficulty. Well, what does Paul do when he's experiencing all of that? Well, he does what I think all of us would do. You don't pray about that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 8, Paul says there three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I believe the context, even if you didn't have the red letters there in in verse number 9, I believe the context would demand that this is a conversation that's happening between Paul and Jesus. When he says Lord there, I think he's talking about Jesus. 
Because he talks there about the power of Christ for the sake of Christ. I think that would suggest that the term Lord as it's used there is this is Paul pleading with the Lord Jesus to give him some relief in this. And then you could even add to that discussion as well what's said at the very end of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22. As John has recorded this apocalypse and as he finishes up the statements there at the end of Revelation chapter 22, he quotes Jesus and Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And then John responds to that in verse 20 when he says, Come, come Lord Jesus. Now, that's not a long prayer. Once again, that's a direct request from a man on earth talking to the Savior in heaven. And I believe that would constitute praying to Jesus. And I think there's probably some other examples that could even be added to that list as well. So, having kind of just shown that and thrown those out there, I'm going to tell you as I think about the question, is it wrong to address Jesus directly in prayer? I'm going to tell you that I am very reluctant to say that it's wrong to address a prayer to Jesus. Especially when we've got two or three examples here, and a couple of these are apostles who did address prayers to Jesus. In fact, if somebody is going to contend that praying to Jesus and addressing Him directly in that fashion is wrong in a prayer then we're going to have to open up a whole nother discussion about the subject of, well, what about singing praises to Jesus? A lot of songs in our songbook where we're singing praises to Jesus. We've sung some of those tonight and this morning. I think the last song this evening is going to be another one of those kinds of songs. So, well, what about that? Well, I don't believe it's wrong to offer a song of praise to Jesus. And I'm not going to stand up here and say that I believe it's wrong to offer a prayer to Jesus. Now, my personal practice and my personal conviction is I'm going to follow the pattern that Jesus sets forth there in Matthew chapter 6 and in John chapter 16. If you ever hear me pray in the public assembly or if you're in my home and we're going to eat a meal or whatever and I'm going to offer a prayer, you're going to hear me begin that prayer talking to God, Father, Lord God, I'm talking to you. And I'm going to conclude that prayer by saying that all of this is being asked in the name of Jesus, it's by the authority of Jesus that I realize I can even ask this and Jesus is mediating on my behalf. That's, that's my conviction about that. But I'll say once again, it's just hard for me to be real dogmatic about that and say, that I'll tell you what, if you in your prayer, if you address Jesus directly, you've done something wrong. I just don't think I could do that, especially when I've got passages here in the New Testament that seem to indicate otherwise. I'd be glad to hear other ideas about those passages and what they're talking about. You're going to have to decide about that on your own, and I'll have to decide about that uh, on my own, and we don't want to violate our conscience about that. Can I just say this, though, kind of to wrap all that up at the end of the day? At the end of the day, you can rest assured that both the Father and the Son, they both hear our prayers. Again, if I'm over here talking to God, I address this prayer to God, that doesn't mean that Jesus is over here just completely out of the loop, doesn't get to hear any of that, or is a part of that. No. He both here. Jesus said, I and the Father, we are one. And I don't think that the members of the Godhead are up in heaven squabbling and jealous with one another over who gets to be the addressee of those prayers. What we just want to be certain that we're doing is that we're praying. That we're beseeching the Lord and we want to talk to Him because He cares for us and He wants us to communicate with Him on a regular basis. How about this third question? We can bang out this one a little bit quicker. How old was Jesus when He died on the cross? Talked about the cross this morning. Talked about the crucifixion. 
If the obituary section in the Jerusalem Times, if it came out the day after Jesus died, and there was a listing there for Jesus of Nazareth, how would it have read? What would have been the dates on that? And how old would He have been? Well, what do we know as far as the facts? Well, first of all, we know for a fact that Jesus was 30 years old when He began His public ministry. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that definitively. Jesus was 30 when He began His ministry. That then brings up the next question. Well, how long did Jesus' public ministry last? Well, as best we can kind of piece together and reconstruct by using the biblical record of all the things that Jesus said and all the places that He went and trying to, trying to put all that into some kind of chronology, and then by also piecing together all the different kind of time markers that the New Testament gives us, and the New Testament gives us a lot of those. The New Testament will tell us from time to time, so-and-so was reigning in such-and-such place. And we can go to secular history and we can realize, okay, that's this day. He reigned until this day. Then we can come back here to the Bible and we can start to put some numbers to all of that. As best we can tell, that was about three to three and a half years that that ministry lasted. And I don't know, for me, it's always enjoyable to actually just go to the Bible and try to see the evidence that the Bible provides. Secular history like Josephus and other first century, second century writers, that's helpful. But I like it especially when we can just go to the Bible and get some clues about that. Like, for example, in John's Gospel, John records for us three different Passovers that happened after Jesus had already began His public ministry. Chapter 2, chapter 6, and chapter 11. How often did the Passover come? Passover came once a year. So it is kind of fun to do a little bit of that sort of detective work and piece all of those things together because when you do, what you will find is that that ministry lasted about three, three and a half years. That seems like the best estimates, which means, do the math, these would have been most likely 33 years old when he was crucified. Then brings us then to this fourth and final question tonight. And I need to set it up by having us read Matthew chapter 1. Would you find Matthew chapter 1? This is one of those uh, questions that our kiddos asked. We were doing some studying and this question very, just very naturally came up and it's a good question because it helps us to, to, to work with the scripture and, and understand some things about context and so forth. In Matthew chapter 1, this is at the birth of Jesus. And at the birth of Jesus, or really kind of before Jesus is even born, the angel of the Lord uh, appears to Joseph, appears to him in a, in a vision and dream by night, and tells him some things. And amongst the things that he tells him is Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. He says to him, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Now here's the very natural question when you go from verse 23 to verse 25. Why, why did Mary and Joseph not name Jesus Emmanuel? The angel said... You're going to name him Emmanuel. So why didn't Jesus' mama and daddy follow the instructions of the angel of the Lord? Well, as always, let's just sit down in the context for a moment. Because did you notice in verse 23 that that actually is a quotation? Maybe if your Bible's like mine, you may actually notice that it's kind of, it's indented and kind of set off a little bit from the text above it and the text below it. 
And that's just kind of a clue that the publishers have put in here to let me know that this, this is a quotation from somewhere else. And in fact, it is a quotation of Old Testament prophecy. Just back up a verse. Look at verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then the quotation, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That is a quotation from the Old Testament. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 7 in verse 14. Your Bible maybe even has a a footnote right there. And it is there that the prophet of the Lord, several hundred years before this, he had said, he had prophesied that a virgin is going to give birth to a son. Now, if you had lived in Isaiah's time and you had heard that, a virgin is going to conceive a son? That would have been an arresting statement. It wouldn't have even made sense. Because that, a virgin bearing a son, that is a physical impossibility. And so what Isaiah is prophesying is that this is going to be something that is supernatural. Not of this world, not of natural order. This is going to be a miraculous birth. And his name is going to be Emmanuel. And in fact, that is not the only time that Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah and says some things about his name. Would you look in Isaiah 9? In Isaiah chapter 9, here's another passage where Isaiah says some stuff about about the Messiah that is to come. And he's going to have, he's going to have not just a name, he's going to have several names. In Isaiah 9 and in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Would you looky there? There are actually several names for Jesus. In fact, if somebody maybe is asking that about the Emmanuel thing, well, why didn't Mary and Joseph name Jesus Prince of Peace? Hey, Prince of Peace, come inside. Time for dinner. How's that going to work? What's the deal here? Well, the answer is, is that Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, these are not actually proper names They are descriptors. That's what these are. These are descriptive titles for Jesus. That name Emmanuel, it means something, doesn't it? That passage in Matthew that we started with, it means God with us. That describes something about Jesus. That Him being here, He is God in the flesh and He is with us. And the same goes for all these other titles. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. These are descriptions of Jesus, not necessarily names of Jesus. And by the way, just while we're talking about it, you do realize that Christ, that that's not a name for Jesus. That's a title. It is a descriptive term. Sometimes people think that Christ was Jesus' last name. That somehow maybe Mary and Joseph was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. and They were married and they had a kid and they named him Jesus Christ. Well, that's not what Christ is. Christ is a title. And it is a title that comes from the Hebrew term that meant Messiah. It means He is the Anointed One, the Anointed One of God. And so those titles, Christ and all of these other titles, they were given prophetically to describe who Jesus was. They are to describe what He was all about and what He would be. He would be Emmanuel. He would be God with us. In fact, many times in the Old Testament, that expression, to be called, it's actually the same as to be. 
that it's a description rather than an actual proper name. I'll give you a real easy illustration of that. Go go to Genesis chapter 2, one final passage tonight. In Genesis chapter 2, notice here when God created, when God created the first two people, after He had created Adam, we're then told that He creates this other person, this woman. And so Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23, upon seeing this woman, the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, you read that verse. Does that mean that Eve's name was woman? Woman, bring me a cup of coffee. Woman, bring... Is is that... No. No. To be called here means she will be. She is this. She is the one who is taken out of man. In fact, when you get over to chapter 3 and in verse, in verse 20, then Adam does give her her proper name, Eve. But she is still what he says she was. She is woman. That's who she is. That's what she is. And so as we bring that then back to Jesus, if you want to describe Jesus, if you're looking for some descriptive ways to describe who Jesus is and what He's all about, then yes, you can say that He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Or you can say that He is the Prince of Peace. Or He is Mighty God and all those other things. He is all of those descriptions and so much more. But if you had met Jesus face to face, and if you had asked Him, Hey, my name's Josh, what's your name? Then He would have said, My name is Jesus. That is the name that He was given. And that brings Q&A night for the month of March to a close. Now, I'll give you one more descriptive title of Jesus as we get ready to extend the invitation of the Lord. How about the descriptive title, Savior? Boy, that's a title that's so rich with meaning, isn't it? Just, just the title itself just says it all. We need a Savior. I need to be saved. I'm looking for some salvation. I need to be saved from sin and from myself and from the destruction that comes along with that. And Jesus, He is that Savior. He's exactly what I need. He's exactly what you need. He's exactly what the whole world needs. The question is, have you come to the Savior? Have you accepted the gracious offer of salvation that the Savior offers? If you have never confessed Jesus as the Son of God, repented and turned from sin and been baptized in water to have all of your sins washed away, as Acts 2.38 and a host of other places teaches, what's, what's holding you up? Is there, is, is there something legitimately holding you up? Is there a question? Is there just some hang-up that you just need a breakthrough with? Maybe we can just talk about that. Maybe you just need more understanding. Be glad to sit and study about these things. This is not really an opportunity right now to get into everything that the Bible says about salvation. But can we talk about that at another time so that we can get to the point where, yes, I'm going to be saved and I'm going to do that the way that Jesus teaches. If there's anybody here tonight who's ready to act, though, all things are ready for you to become a Christian. Brother or sister, if you're not living right, then you you need a Savior as well. You need to come back to the Savior. You need to repent and you need to seek His forgiveness in prayer and in humility and begin serving Him in a better way. And if we can assist you in that, whatever your need may be, we're ready to help. You just simply need to make it known. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.